So welcome again. My name is Matthew. I'm the lead pastor here at Cedar Ridge. And um, as Ruth uh, just mentioned, we are beginning our Lent series today. We had Ash Wednesday just this past Wednesday um, where Lent began. And uh, this is the first Sunday of Lent. And our series uh, uh, this year is focusing on the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And um, they are they appear in various gospels. You know, all seven don't appear in any one gospel. So it's sort of a collective grouping of these sayings. We don't know for sure whether Jesus said other things from the cross, uh, but these are the sayings that are recorded in the scriptures. So um, they've been very important to um, to the church for many centuries. People have really treasured these sayings, meditated on them, focused on them. And in the spirit of Lent, we are also going to be um, taking a more contemplative, thoughtful, reflective approach to these sayings. Um, and uh, as Ruth was saying earlier, looking at them to help us be transformed, for, that we would actually become different kind of people, uh, also as we were just singing there. Um, they are, um, if you think about it, and, and we've just been... Um, exploring the book of first john right the first letter of john where we uh looked at uh, jesus as love incarnate um god incarnate but god is love so jesus is love incarnate and love is defined by sacrifice it's sacrificial love and and if that's the case if if we can look if to see um jesus and to see god we we're seeing sacrificial love then in in some respects what Jesus says from the cross is perhaps the epitome of love, because this is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is suffering. Jesus is anguished. There's all kinds of things going on, which we'll explore over these next seven weeks. But we're to some degree gazing into the heart of God. We're gazing at love itself. It's love epitomized. It's the quintessence of love if you like, that we're seeing from the cross in this moment of trauma that Jesus is going through. Um, and we've also explored in that first uh, uh, letter of John, how actually we can embody God's love. We can be love incarnate. We can share in the in the life of Christ, the kind of life that um, Jesus lived, the life everlasting that Jesus lived. So these sayings aren't going to be, we're not going to approach them as their sort of wonderful platitudes that we can admire or, or we'll stand back and admire Jesus, but rather see them as challenges that we too can live like that. Um, even though it may, it, at times it's going to feel like way out of our grasp, but um, there, there's this sense of Jesus believing in us that we too can be um, that loving. We too can embrace love, embody love in that kind of way. So it's going to be a challenging series in keeping with the challenge of Lent as we go through the next seven weeks together. Um, today, we're going to look at the first saying, which is when Jesus says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And he's been nailed to the cross. He's being executed. And he, he, he comes out with these unbelievably forgiving words. Um, so what we're going to do is just put a little bit of context to that. That comes in Luke um, 23. So we're going to look actually at most of the chapter, that chapter of Luke. We're just going to read it. You know, we're not going to explore it in any great detail, but just so we've got a little bit of the context. And you remember, actually, we, we did a series or a couple of series last year going through the whole book of Luke. We did it in two parts. And you may remember that Jesus is from Galilee in the north of this region, the north of Palestine. Um, and, he, he, you know, he's from Nazareth, which is in Galilee. And Galilee was um, a hotbed of insurrection. It was um, a, a many uh, messianic leaders, many um, uh, anti-Roman leaders uh, grew up and sprung up in Galilee. Um, the Romans had a lot of problems up there. 
And uh, but Jesus was very different. Jesus was talking about love and peace and nonviolence. And he toured around Galilee in the first part of his ministry, as recorded in Luke. Um, and then and preaching that message of forgiveness and, and hope and peace and nonviolence. And then he made his way towards Jerusalem. And, and he seemed to know as he headed south that he was going to meet trouble in Jerusalem, that he, he would eventually be killed in Jerusalem. And um, so he, you know, the second half of Luke is his journey through Judea towards Jerusalem. And then he gets to Jerusalem and we find him in chapter 23 um, being tried. Now, in chapter 22, the, the chapter before what we're about to read, um, things have gone pretty badly. Jesus celebrates the uh, Last Supper. He celebrates his last Passover meal with his disciples and they argue about who's the greatest. Uh, there's this sort of competition between them and they're, they're you know you get the sense of them as we often do pulling others down so we look better or trying to push ourselves above others there's this but it's horrendous given the context of what's about to happen um and then jesus goes out to pray and he takes his disciples with him and, and it says that jesus sweats like drops of blood i mean he is so anxious so afraid that he pleads with his father he pleads with god to um uh, to be redeemed from, or rescued from this situation he says don't let this cup pass he doesn't want to have to drink the cup he doesn't want to have to go through what he knows is about to happen meanwhile although in that point we should say jesus surrenders says not my will but your will be done meanwhile his disciples have fallen asleep they can't even keep awake and you get this sense of the beginning of jesus being deserted then Judas shows up. Judas, Judas has betrayed Jesus. He brings the, the religious police, the temple guard, to come and arrest Jesus. And there's a bit of a scuffle. And uh, uh, one of the disciples hits out with a sword, cuts the ear off one of the, the, um, the temple guards. And, the, um, and Jesus, though, responds with love, responds with healing, heals that, that guard. And then they take Jesus off and um, they take him to the religious authorities. And we're about to join Jesus there where he's been uh, convicted of blasphemy while Peter is outside um, denying Jesus, denies him three times despite warning. So this is a we're already in a horrendous situation, um, a, a traumatic situation. And then in chapter 23, here's how the story continues. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate and they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be a messiah, a king. You can see how they're loading the dice, if you like, for Pilate. They're, they're inferring that Jesus is a rebel against Rome. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here in front to cause trouble. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. We see here the duplicity. So they, they were telling, Herod, uh, telling Pilate that Jesus is from Galilee to try and incite Pilate to think, oh, he's, he's an insurrectionist. 
actually Pilate wants to get him off his hands. And so the Galilee reference is a cue for him to pass him on to the person who has jurisdiction, which is Herod. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with questions, but Jesus gave no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Jesus is quoting the ancient prophet Hosea there. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. So I read that to um, put some context to what Jesus says. I think it's very easy for us to um, 
I, I don't know, romanticized perhaps some of um, Jesus's words, you know, where, whenever he taught, but especially I think over this Easter story and in this Easter period that we'll be entering into soon. We know the end of the story. We're very familiar with it. And sometimes, you know, we can uh, forget just how traumatized Jesus is in this moment, just how absolutely deserted he's been, how, how desolate the situation is and how desperate it is. And, you know, even just reading that, I, it felt emotional to, to think of anybody going through what Jesus is going through at that, that particular point in time. And, you know, some people um, uh, have tried to... Uh, make out that Jesus suffered more than any human being has ever suffered in the history of humanity in that instance. I'm not sure whether that's true. Many people have suffered unbelievable trauma. But I think what we do have here is the sense that this is extreme trauma, and therefore this is extreme forgiveness. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he's not, this isn't insignificant. This is forgiving people who are doing absolute atrocities against him. It's extreme forgiveness. And we have to ask ourselves, who is he forgiving? Look, who, who is Jesus addressing this to? What, especially when he says they don't know what they're doing. Now, he could be referring to the soldiers that are actually performing the task of um, execution. He almost certainly seems to be referring to them. They had a job to do as part of the, um, the, the Roman army. And that was to execute criminals like this. That was, that was how Rome behaved. That was an exhibition of the power of Rome, crucifixion. Um, so they're doing their job. Jesus could be speaking to them. But I think the implication is, and again, this is a part of the reason for reading that whole chapter, is Jesus is speaking to the religious authorities or speaking about them, about the Roman authorities, Pilate in particular. I think he's speaking about Peter, who denied him. Judas, who betrayed him, all the disciples that uh, uh, forsook him, the ones that fell asleep, the ones that argued about who's going to be most powerful when Jesus must have felt like, man, I've had three, three years with you and you're still arguing about power. This is extensive, inclusive forgiveness. It's not just, I think, to, oh, these soldiers don't know what they're doing. Jesus is inferring that none of these people know what they're doing. And the inference, I think, is... That if they really knew, if they really understood, they wouldn't be doing this. And it begs the question, I guess, um, how aware are all those different parties of what they were doing? And it begs the question of when we do wrong or when wrong is done to us, how aware are we or other people of the, of the wrongdoing? Or is it just ignorance? Is it just lack of understanding? And I, I think there's times it seems like people just deliberately consciously in full knowledge commit awful atrocities and and um you know on a large scale and on an everyday mean scale that, that it can certainly be intentional but i think what jesus seems to be implying here is that someone like pilate is he doesn't get it he doesn't understand what's happening he 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 seems to understand that jesus is not guilty but he still doesn't understand that he's, he's part of a system of power, Rome, where he has to main control and he has to play his part in that system. There's the juggernaut of the system, if you like, driving him to do things that he doesn't even want to do. He wanted to release Jesus, but he's, he's committing this act 
uh, of executing Jesus because he wants to maintain some peace. He doesn't want uh, 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 trouble in the, in, the, in the city. It's the Passover time. There's loads of people coming in. Loads of people are thinking about liberation, freedom, because that's what the Passover is celebrating. The, the religious authorities, I really wonder if they knew who Jesus was, whether they would have executed him. The problem is they just didn't understand. God shows up and they don't recognize God. They don't, they don't see that God is love. They see God in a, in a different light. So, so they're just doing what they think is the right thing, I'm sure. I'm sure and they're, they're justifying their actions based on their ignorance, based on the lack of love that they have, the lack of, lack of understanding of love, the lack of commitment to love. They, they're um, uh, putting power and their control and their power above love. And, and, and trying to maintain their control. So there's, you know, what level of consciousness there is or not, we don't really know. But Jesus is implying if they knew, then they wouldn't be doing this. He's implying that, I think. And so what we see here is love incarnate rising above this atrocity. These atrocities and all the, all the people that, that have, have given their worst to Jesus, if you like, somehow love is able to lift him up to see beyond the immediate issue of the pain and the suffering and the insult. To see them as human beings, to see them as part of a, a much bigger problem that in some sense they are also victims of. And he's able in that in that light with that. Um, insight and that um, courage he's able to extend forgiveness or plead for their forgiveness because he sees something different about them there's 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 a, a, he, he's risen up to a level of creative hope where he can believe something else about these people other than they've hurt me that makes them bad and i and i i need to hurt them in return and we see this in 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 Jesus's teaching time and time again, how Jesus calls us and lives it out himself to rise above the um, uh, retaliation system, if you like. Jesus calls us to, rather than return evil with evil, to return evil with good, rather than to, um, if somebody hits us, to not to hit back. If somebody treats us badly, treat them as you would want to be treated, not as, the, not as they deserve to be treated. And in this sense, forgiveness is perhaps, you could think of it, it's like the, it's like the touch paper to light the fire in the darkness and the cold that brings love in. Somebody has to stop the rot, right? Somebody, somebody has to say, I'm not going to return violence with violence. I'm not going to return hate with hate. I'm not going to return fear with more fear. I'm not going return, to return power with control. I'm going I'm to love. And that begins, it seems, most powerfully with forgiveness. When people do things to us that deserve some kind of other um, action on our part, but we choose to forgive. And that doesn't mean we justify what they're doing. I don't think Jesus here is saying it's OK. I mean, there's nothing OK about this. This is traumatic abuse. There's nothing OK with it. It's unjust. He's been set up and, and executed unjustly and very intentionally. This is, there's nothing okay. And Jesus is not saying it's okay. He's saying uh, they don't know what they're doing. It's, ah, they don't know what they're doing. It's clearly that is not the case. 
But Jesus is courageously and powerfully embodying love, even in this most extreme, um, vulnerable situation he is being, while he's being executed. I think most of us, if not all of us, understand and aspire to forgiveness, right? We understand the beauty of forgiveness. We've, we, we read accounts of what you know, read accounts of people who've um, been through concentration camps in the in the Holocaust or been through apartheid and been able to forgive their abusers, being able to forgive their enemies. And, and there's something redemptive about that, something incredibly powerful about it. There's something we aspire to, I think, in that regard to forgiveness. At the same time, I think we all, if you're anything like me, struggle with the really pedantic things in life that I find hard to forgive people for. I judge people and bear grudges and, you know, around things that aren't really that important at all. Nothing like those kind of um, atrocities we've been talking about there. And um, some of us have experienced abject pain through trauma, through abuse. And, you know, we, we, know, we know what that is. And we've had to work at forgiveness and, and letting go. And that doesn't mean, again, saying it's okay. It doesn't even mean liking our enemies. It certainly doesn't mean agreeing with them. But it means love and forgiveness. And some of us have struggled with unreconciled bitterness because of different things that have happened in our lives that we haven't been able to resolve and we haven't been able to address. And we kind of bear the pain of that in our bodies. And psychology and medicine will tell us that we, we, the resentment and bitterness is sort of held within our bodies and it has an, has an impact on us. So what I want to do just this morning is just look at a couple of scriptures about forgiveness, some of Jesus' teaching. But I want to move on fairly quickly to how we can forgive. I don't think we need too much education about forgiveness being good. It's, we, we see it as a beautiful thing. It's just so hard to do it. So that's, that's the challenge, I think. So that's where we're going to move to. But let's just look at a couple of scriptures first. This is one from Matthew 18, where Jesus, um, when Peter comes to Jesus, he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. So I don't think Jesus is being literal here, right? He, it, this, this isn't about numbers. This isn't about uh, an equation that has to be balanced. Um, this is about the reality that forgiveness is always what we're called to. Um, it, it's, it, we should be offering unending forgiveness because this is the end. Of, this is what breaks the cycle of hatred. This is what breaks the cycle of fear. If we can forgive it creates an opportunity for love to blossom rather than just perpetuating the darkness, rather than perpetuating the fear. Um, now, it releases, if you like, love to flow into, um, whereas it, it releases that flow. It's like a, releasing a dam that is, is, is blocked up by unforgiveness. Um, let's look at another scripture here where um, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. This will be very familiar to us, really, because it's where the Lord's Prayer comes from. This, is, this then is how you should pray. This is Jesus talking. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people 
when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Um, so Jesus is saying here, forgiveness is really important. Um, but there's also a bit of a problem with this last bit, right? Because it, it, this is almost, it could be interpreted that actually we're supposed to turn the other cheek. We're supposed to uh, return uh, hatred with, with love. Um, we're supposed to treat others as they, as we want to be treated rather than how we deserve to be treated. But God gets a, you know, God gets out of that. God doesn't have to do that. So God can be more um, tit for tat. God can be more eye for an eye. If you don't forgive, I won't forgive you. You know, that could be one interpretation. That would be crazy if that was the interpretation. That would be like, wow, Jesus is contradicting himself. You know, he's just been talking in this Sermon on the Mount about another kind of reality. So what's going on here? I think what Jesus is saying is, is he's talking about this flow of forgiveness. It's like, imagine forgiveness, love, if you like, is, is, is like a river. And we, we, we can be standing in that river and we're receiving from upstream forgiveness because God is love. There's nothing but love coming towards us. And we can allow downstream forgiveness and love to flow from us we're, we're we're either in that flow receiving and giving or we're not in the river we're on the bank just observing or just totally out of you know ignorant of it all i think the point jesus is making is that this is a flow this is this is um this is what makes the universe work if you like you, you can't have you can't have either or you can't not forgive. And he tells a story just after um, talking about this of somebody who needs forgiveness, but then doesn't forgive somebody else. And we receive it. That Love is unconditional. God, God, God is love. God loves us. And we release that love as, uh, as part of that flow downstream to others. It, this is how things work. This is how change can happen. This is how transformation transformation can happen within our individual lives and, and within our society as a whole and forgiveness is, seems such a powerful thing for the release of that love even in the most horrendous situations so as we were saying at the beginning we we're called to embody this kind of love right we're, we're called to be like jesus to share in that life and to um therefore to practice forgiveness and it feels like that's such a big ask and and i've got to say that for me i feel like i'm somebody who's who's been more in need of forgiveness in my life than who's needed to forgive um and i know for for many of us we've had to forgive some really big things some really difficult things and and it's a journey right i think when jesus is saying forgive 70 times seven times he's also saying you, you forgive and then you forgive again. I mean, how many of us have had that experience where we've kind of forgiven and we feel we've got through it and then something brings it up again and then we're right back at square one? It's okay, forgive again. Just release the love. Let the let the let forgiveness flow. So um we I think we we can relate to it again. You know, it's it, it makes sense, but it's 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 just so hard. we we have um all of us, I think, experienced struggling to forgive somebody else. And the impact that has on our life in terms of resentment and bitterness. We've also, I think, struggled with people not forgiving us, right? The pain of that, the difficulty of that. 
Uh, I think we've also struggled with the pain of not forgiving ourselves. And um, that's something I, I often struggle with. Like, um, you know, I, I feel I should have done better. I should have been better. And if you think about it, it's kind of a control issue, really, because for some reason, I think I should not have made a mistake or I should have got everything right and I, I should be perfect. And my need for forgiveness is perhaps annoying to me. I'd, I would rather not be in the place of needing forgiveness. So in some sense, not forgiving myself is one way of controlling that emotion or controlling that feeling. Likewise, actually, control factors in, I think, when we don't forgive people, because it, it, you know, when you don't forgive somebody or you harbor resentment or you blame somebody for something, it can actually feel quite good for a while because we have some control over it. It just it, it eats away at us and, 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 and destroys us. So there's some lots of more deep seated issues that affect our ability to forgive or not or our ability to forgive ourselves, our ability to let go of resentment. Um, they're, they're, they're deep issues. So what we're going to do now um, is a little prayer practice called the welcoming prayer. And, uh, you know, we'll probably many of us will be familiar with this. If you're not, it's totally fine. Um, and I'm just going to talk us through it because I think it can help us, particularly with this area of, of forgiveness. The welcoming prayer is a way to address um, negative emotions that we experience in everyday life. Sometimes, you know, we're all emotional beings. There's nothing wrong in emo with emotion. But sometimes our emotions can get the better of us and they become destructive either to us or to, to other people. And the welcoming prayer is a way to address that and to um, grow as a result of it. Um, and we're going to practice it. It may be for, for you that this is bringing up issues of resentment, bitterness, forgiveness, or lack of forgiveness, and that will be the focus of this prayer. But we can apply it to any emotion that we're feeling. So if, we, if we're feeling some other kind of emotion at the moment, that's, that's fine too. We're just going to go with it. Um, let's do, look at the first slide here. The, the, um, the prayer practice is based on the fact that our, our emotions really come from three basic human needs, um, and they're couplets. Safety and security, esteem and affection. In other words, love. You know, I mean, affection is probably more what we would describe for intimate connections. So that might be, uh, you know, uh, family members, friends. Esteem might be more how we're treated at work by, by colleagues, by supervisors, etc. Um, and power and control. Now, it's important to say that all three of these are legitimate and most of the time healthy needs. They're human needs. They're very normal. They're very natural. Um, but we don't always get those needs met, right? So um, somebody may have treated us really badly and we're struggling to forgive um, we might not feel very loved. It might be an esteem and affection issue. It could be a we're not feeling very safe. We're not feeling very secure. It could be we're not feeling very, we don't have power over the situation or control in that situation. It, it, it doesn't mean that our desire for those things is wrong. It just means that in that situation, we're not getting what we want. And that's causing all kinds of emotional um, reaction for us. And so the, the whole point of the, the welcoming prayer is ultimately to let go of the demand for those needs in any given situation. It's not saying they're wrong. It's just saying, okay, in this situation, I'm not getting what I want. So I'm just going to let go of the demand for it. 
and release it. And I may have to take some other kind of action. Like if I don't feel safe and secure in a relationship, um, I can let go of the demand to feel safe and secure. And that can, that can set me free. But I still might actually need to take some action by putting some boundaries down, removing myself from the situation, et cetera. Okay, so this is, again, not letting go of um, th th that these are important things. It's not saying it doesn't matter. I don't matter. My needs don't matter. My desires don't matter. It's saying it's just being real about them. The way we practice this is through um, uh, noticing it, our emotions, welcoming them, connecting them to something, one of those needs, and then letting them go. Now, what we normally do with emotions is push emotions away, right? We don't like negative emotional uh, reactions, and we tend to just ignore them or deal with them a different way or drink them away or do whatever we do to deal with our um, uh, negative emotions. The welcoming prayers is, is um, you know, these first two stages here, which are often combined into one stage, are, are noticing it and welcoming it, just not pushing it away. S saying, okay, whatever that emotion is we're feeling, bitterness, resentment, anger, fear, whatever it is, we're going to notice it, kind of name it, and then welcome it and feel it. And that can be a little bit unsettling. But just so it's me. This is this is what I'm experiencing right now. This is what I'm. I'm this is real to me. Um, and then we go into a, a, a stage. So having welcomed, named it, being aware of it, welcomed it. We go into a stage where we're going to try and connect it to one of those basic human needs. Like, where is this coming from? Because the emotion itself is just a reaction. It's like a it's like a light on a dashboard telling us something about something going on much deeper. So we're going to then try to connect that to, okay, I think it's because I don't feel safe or it's because I don't feel loved or it's all three. <laughs> but we're going to do that, that work. So, you know, noticing it means awareness. Welcoming it means accepting the reality of our emotions. Connecting to it is, that's kind of vulnerable work because we're going to dig a little bit deeper and create some space for that to happen. Then we're going to let it go. And that's the hardest part. And I don't really know how, how to explain that because I think letting you, you let go by letting go. It's like, and I think as we let go a little bit, we learn to let go more. And, we, and it's a process and it's a journey. But we're just going to let go of the demand for that need to be met in that given situation. So we're going to take a minute to, to, to do this prayer together. There's also um, in the discussions questions this week, there's a, an opportunity in our groups or on our own to do that, uh, to, to, to do the welcoming prayer. And when we finish the welcoming prayer, we'll take communion together as we wrap the service up and included in communion. So we have communion at the, the front here, uh, gluten-free crackers and fruit juice as usual. Um, on the middle table here, we also have a couple of um, uh, containers with honey in one, uh, little cups of honey and little cups of vinegar. It's not gin, just so you know when you look at it. It's very white liquid, but it's vinegar. And there's accompanied with that is a little um, sheet of paper where you can um, do an exercise where the, the drink some of the vinegar and let it show you areas of bitterness in your own life and then eat the honey and let it resolve that bitterness and, and let go. So there's a little exercise you can do with that, um, with um, 
vinegar and honey, and it's all described there on a piece of paper, so I won't say any more about it now. But let's just quieten our hearts for a moment. Maybe we can put the lights down a little bit. Center ourselves. We all have different ways of being present to ourselves, being present in the moment. So just do whatever you need to do. That might be just focusing on your breathing. Might be being conscious of your own body right now. And so it may be forgiveness issues. It may be bitterness. It may be resentment. It may be something completely different, but just become aware of what's going on emotionally for you right now. Just let it surface. Sometimes it helps to put your hand on, on a part of your body where you might feel that emotion. You know, we feel it in our shoulders or in our head or in our stomach or in our chest. Helps, it might help to identify it that way, but just be aware, notice. And as you home in on it, welcome it rather than pushing it away. Try to look at that emotion actually as your friend because it's going to help you. It's going to help you look on the inside. Just let it, let it be, feel it. Sometimes it's only as we feel it and let it and, and welcome it that we, we become aware of what it actually is. Now try to connect it. Where, where is this emotion coming from? What is it? What's its source? Is it power and control? Safety and security? Esteem and affection?
And as you identify where that's coming from, just sit in the presence of love and let it go, let go of that demand. Whatever it is, power and control, safety and security, esteem and affection, whatever it is, you're not getting it in that situation. And you can't control it. So just let go. Let's stay in a prayerful place. Let's stay in, stay in that centered place. The, the band are going to come up um, as we take communion together. And um, let's use this time. Let, let's stay in that letting go place. Or maybe it's we're still trying to connect it to one of those desires and needs. Um, but let's continue in this prayerful posture. Um, when, when you're ready, please feel free to come and take communion. Um, the exercise with honey and uh, vinegar might be helpful to you at this point uh, during the communion time as well. We have all our other usual things. You can light candles at the back. That, uh, there's a, a prayer station for Ukraine. You can write out prayers um, at the sides as well. So let's just take this time to respond to God in the way that feels appropriate for us. <laughs> 